Isaiah chapter 43, beginning in verse 18. Uh, this is a familiar verse in Scripture, and certainly with all things new, uh, this, is, this will make sense to you pretty much right off the bat. If you have it, you can throw it on the screen there. Remember you not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Somebody say, new thing. How many wants God to do a new thing in your life? Amen. Amen. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. As we continue in this series, All Things New, today, believe it or not, from that verse in Scripture, I want to talk about the first church. And I want to talk about that redemptive work of God, that restoration that He brought through and is still bringing through the hands of His church, willing people. If you want to be used by God this afternoon, would you just lift your voice and would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you and we thank you for salvation. We thank you, God, that you are still reaching a lost world. And we thank you, God, that we get to be a part of your redemptive work. That though, Lord, it may confound the wise of the world to use the frailty of men, it is your will and your desire. And today, God, in this room, you will use anybody who is desiring to be used, who is willing to be used. And so, God, I pray that your anointing would rest heavily upon Stello Church and its members. And today, that we would be empowered by your spirit and by your word. I speak that in the name of Jesus. Would you say amen? And would you put your hands together one more time? Thank you, Jesus. You can be seated. Thank you for your worship. A new thing, a new thing. Isaiah, the book where we took our text today, is a book all about reconciliation. The original readers of this book understood that. It was the Jewish people. In fact, we understand that in this time in history, they were in captivity. And the prophetic word of Isaiah was that if you will repent, God will restore he will take a nation out of captivity and he will bring them back into prominence and into freedom. Spiritually, aren't you thankful that that is still the case for anybody today? That if you will repent and turn away, God will restore you in this room right now. In fact, can I just take a moment and preach right off the bat and tell you that if you walked into this room and you need God to restore your life, you are one repentance prayer away from restoration. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to stay a few weeks. You don't have to show God how good you are. None of that is good enough anyway. But if you will humbly come before him and you will say, God, I am nothing. I am broken, but I am in need of you. He will run to where you are at. He will lift you up out of your brokenness, out of that miry clay, and he will give you restoration and freedom today. We understand through this passage, though, it was more than just a nation that God was speaking of through the prophet Isaiah. We get a prophetic peek into the redemption plan that was bigger than just Israel. In fact, we understand that what Isaiah was prophesying about was a revival that would happen among the Gentiles. If you don't know what that means, that means anybody who's not a Jew. That's a good place to say amen. For most of us, that's all of us. If you're Jewish in this room, I'd love to meet you after service. But for us Gentiles, that's some good news right there. That this promise and this redemptive work and this restoration, God, when he used a man named Isaiah, he was already talking about something in the future that could be called a new thing. In fact, let me read to you a couple of verses out of that same book of Isaiah. Isaiah 18 and 3 says this, all, somebody say all. All the inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth. When he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. Isaiah 49 and 22 in the same spirit says this. Thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people. And they, those Gentile folks, what are they going to do? They're going to bring their sons in their arms and their daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. 
years. And Isaiah goes on to talk about a spirit of adoption, which would be in the people of God, that would bring in those who were outside of the promise. Now they would be inside of the promise. Certainly, this massive worldwide revival that was so big that God would have to warn them would be called a new thing. Because as far as they were concerned, it was the Gentiles that had put them in captivity in the first place. The revival wasn't for the enemy, amen, somebody. The revival wasn't supposed to be for those folks who in the first place were responsible for my brokenness and my captivity. But God always had a plan that was bigger than the mindset of the people. The restoration that God had would only be revealed by by seeing a peek into the future. And thankfully, God knows the end from the beginning. Amen, somebody? And the Bible says this, that before the foundations of the earth were ever laid, two things, we were in Christ. Now that's exciting. So before the foundations of the earth were ever laid, let me just tell you, the redemptive plan of God is not a plan B. God was not taken by surprise when sin entered into the world. But God understood in his foreknowledge what would have to take place. And therefore, here's the second thing that happened before the foundations of the world were ever laid. The Bible says that the lamb was slain. You see, the cross was already in the mind of God. God understood what it would take to buy us back out of our bondage and out of our sin and out of our shame. And so before ever there was a day spoken into existence, He knew that you and I would be able to stand in salvation, redemption, and restoration because of the redemptive work of the blood of Jesus Christ being spilled today. So if you walked in and you feel like your sin is too great or your past is too deep, I am here to tell you that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the earth were ever laid. I am here to tell you that you were in Christ before you were ever born. He knew what his plan for you was and his thoughts and his ways were higher than our thoughts and our ways. You know what his will is for you? That you would be saved today. That you wouldn't be broken in bondage. That you wouldn't be broken in addiction that you wouldn't be broken in sin and shame and pain. No, that you would have life and life more abundantly. That is the will of God for you today. I don't know what you walked in with today, but I'm here to tell you what you can walk out with. You can walk out with freedom. You can walk out with life. You can walk out with joy. You can walk out with peace that passes understanding. You may have walked in with addiction, but you can walk out with freedom from that addiction. You may have walked in with desperation, but you can walk out of this place with hope. Because God has already accomplished His work within us. It's His will. And in order for these things to come to pass, this new thing to come to pass, yes, He would do the work. He would... Send a spotless lamb. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him. We don't have to perish but we can have life everlasting. That's beautiful. But it's more complex than that. Because what really perplexes us today. Is that he doesn't accomplish this redemptive work all by himself. But he makes a decision to partner With the frailty of human beings. And he empowers with his own spirit. An entity that is made up of men. But not man made. What is that entity? The church. Yes. Broken and imperfect. And made up of people. Just as bad as you. And me. That's what's confounding to the wisdom of the world that this church, this entity that we call the church could somehow be a part of this great redemptive work that God has for the world. But it's by His will. In fact, that's why we have Pentecost. For a few moments today, I'm going to give you a a good sermon that I believe is going to be an apostolic sermon where we talk about the book of Acts, but I'm also going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. 
Because it is that in certain churches and maybe in certain upbringings, depending on who you are or where you're from, that it's very likely impossible that whenever you spoke to your religious leader, they told you it would probably be best if you just skipped over the book of Acts. Sometimes that's the warning. Sometimes we'll say it like this. The book of Acts should come with a warning label. Because I'm just telling you, I believe this. I know it's true. But every time I get in the book of Acts, something just happens to this preacher. And I start believing with a new, a new passion, a renewed ideal and, and, and just mindset that God, this really is for us today. And you really have empowered your church to do something amazing. That's why when you kick off the book of Acts, it doesn't take very long. But it says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one mind, in one accord. And we know what's happening here. Christ has already died on the cross. He has risen again. He showed himself alive with many infallible proofs, the scripture says. And he says to his church, he says, Go and wait in Jerusalem and tarry there until you be endued with power from on high. Well, that's exciting. I don't know what that means. But there they are, they're praying day after day after day, seeking and saying, okay, God, we're ready when you're ready. We know we've got a word from God. And then Acts 2 and 1 opens up and the scripture says that the spirit of God fills an upper room where there was about 120 and they all begin to speak with tongues as the spirit like fire gave them power to do so. You know what happens? It spills onto the streets and when it spills onto the streets, it's such a show and such a spectacle that people come out and they say, what meaneth this? What is this experience? We've never seen anything like it. And there that day, it started with 120 and then ended up moving into a few thousand. And those that gladly received the word, the scripture says they repented. They were baptized in the name of Jesus by immersion in water. And they were all filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. That same experience went out into thousands. That's exciting. And so we see a blueprint. So why do you call your church Stello Church? That's a weird, weird name. You know what? I agree with you. Hey, what was it? What was it last week? Let's do a quick test. Oh, nobody, nobody. Thank you for the 12 of you that remembered. If you don't remember, you can go back and watch last week. But here they are, and you've got this book of Acts church that that is, is, it just comes onto the scene, and, and we say Stello Church. Why? Because I explained it before, but Stello is the root word that means to be sent with purpose, and it's where you get the word apostello, apostle or apostolic. And the truth of the matter is that over the last several hundred years, it is that when the church, even before, was driven into the dark ages and when man's theology and ideas begin to be infused with God's word that they watered down this experience yet there has always been a group of what you could call restorationists that believe that the same experience is still for the people of today and their day in history and their time we fall into that category and I'm still passionate to preach to you that what happened in the book of Acts this preacher right here believes that God is still doing that for folks today. In fact, I believe that it is the will of God, not just for one or two or a few or a certain group. I believe that this is for every single person. I believe that this experience, can I just tell you what North Raleigh and Wake Forest didn't need was just another church. In fact, when we started our church, I had a few people ask me. They'd say, another church in Wake Forest, North Raleigh, another? But, but, but wait, wait, wait. This isn't just any church. This is an apostolic church. This is a church that takes God at his word and says it may be extraordinary. It may be out of our control. It may not look like the religious mediocrity that we have been peddled for centuries. But God, if you said it's real, we still believe it's real. If you said that you'd fill them with the Holy Ghost, we believe that you are going to do it. If you said that signs and wonders would follow, we still believe it today. Started thinking. I thought, man, you could break 
Pentecost down, the church down, this empowered, spirit-filled community down pretty quickly in these few chapters, spanning from the end of the Gospels to the book of Acts. You could look at it as the what, the who, the where, how, when, and why. So, what is God trying to do with this new entity called the church, this new thing? That's what we're in, right? All things new. What is it that God is wanting to do? Well, he said it in Isaiah, and he said it again in the Gospels, and he birthed it in the New Testament church. He wants to bring a revival and a restoration to people who are in need of revival and restoration. And who is he wanting to do this in? Who is it that he's wanting to give this to? Well, I'm excited to tell you that who is, that's the exciting part. Because Peter stood up and he said, This is that which the prophet Joel spoke of, saith God. In the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. That's who. And it's not just Jesus even said it. It's not just for Judea or Samaria. It's for all the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's the where. Because you can answer those two together. This experience is not just for some exclusive small group. This is for everybody everywhere. Did you know that statistics have come out in the last few, few years that over half the country of Brazil have been spirit filled with, with evidence of speaking in tongues? Did you know that? That God is pouring His Spirit out on entire countries and regions right now all over this world to a point where certain denominations have had to actually change their bylaws at their general conferences? Oh yeah, things get real sticky when your missionaries keep speaking in tongues. Man, these people, these people are crazy. Bad news. Looks like all of our missionaries are speaking in tongues as well right now. And we've got Catholic priests who are praying on their own in their own prayer time. And as they're praying, what they're reporting is that God is filling the room that they're in. And they're beginning to speak an unknown language that they don't understand. Why? Because the who and the where is not, it's not, uh, it's not limited to some denomination. It's not limited to, to some class or creed. It's not limited to a certain country or what you call yourself. But anybody that would be willing can experience a Pentecost in their lives. And you know what that makes me say? God, why not here in Wake Forest in North Raleigh? Why not right now in our community? Why not our sons and daughters? Why not our children? Why not the hallways of our school? We want a restoration in this place, right here, right now. It's right now. In fact, you want to know when it's going to happen? He said, this is that which the prophet Joel spoke of, saith God. That in the last days. That's right now. You know, Peter, when he spoke that, he thought 2,000 years ago, that was the last days. I think he was right. But if he was right, we're definitely right. I believe this is the last days. I believe that God is wanting to do a work like we have never seen before. I believe what, I believe what Jesus said. He said this, greater things you shall do also in my name. You see, the will of God, this is powerful, is that corporately we could do more than anyone could do individually, even Jesus Christ. Whoa, wait a second, Pastor. You're telling me that corporately the church is going to do more than individually did Jesus did by himself? That was his words. Not in that we bring redemption by our blood. No, that was only the innocent blood of Jesus Christ. I think we understand that. But the will of God is he said it to them. You are going to be endued with power from on high so that you can become witnesses. You see, the reason that God filled you and filled me with the Holy Ghost is so that we, like that first church, would be able to be witnesses of what God has done. Can I just remind you and I, this new thing, this redemptive work of God, the empowered, spirit-filled church is not something that we should just step back and put it in a category among many things. No, this is different. This is unique. This is an empowerment from heaven. This is the same 
same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, which is alive in you and I. And today, you've got to understand who you are. You are an empowered child of God, filled with the Holy Ghost. And because of that, the signs and wonders will follow you if you believe. And in the name of Jesus, I'm speaking apostello into this room. I'm speaking an empowerment of the church and of the people of God that we would walk with authority that we would believe that in the name of Jesus there is a revival there's a revival that's going to spread into the Spanish speaking community there's a revival that's going to spread into our workplaces there's a revival that's going to spread into our schools into other churches I believe that it is the will of God that entire congregations are converted to the fullness of the word of God and he's going to, how's he going to do it? He's going to use, he's going to use us. He's going to use me. He's going to use you. That's the will of God. But why? Why? Yes, we know why. Because it is God's will. He said it. He would that no man would perish. He loves us. That's the number one reason. He loves us. And we know that. Now, this is a very comprehensive question of why. God would redeem us. But let me give you a quick overview. Yes, He loves humanity. Yes, He wants to redeem us. For God so loved the world. No doubt about it. But can I also tell you that when God makes a promise, the Old Testament says in one place that when He made a promise, He looked where He could swear by, where He could put His promise on, and He realized and knew this, that there was none greater than Himself. And so when He made a promise, the Scripture says He swore by Himself. He said, I'll, I'll use my own name. And so guess what? This revival, this redemptive plan, this work that God wants to do, he's got his own name on it. He said he would do it. And if he said he would do it, then he absolutely is going to do it. Why? For his own reputation. Can I just tell you, it is the will of God even more than it is the desire of man to give this redemptive, restorative work to this nation, this community, and this world right now. But if heaven is going to believe it, if God is going to swear by himself, if his promises are yes and amen, and we aren't seeing it, can I just go ahead and by deductive reasoning tell you, I don't think it's because God is slack concerning his promises. But I think it is at times that the church forgets who they are and what God wants to do and forgets the recipe for that kind of revival. Because what we've got to understand in this 21 days of prayer and fasting is what we're doing is we're regaging ourselves and we're putting ourselves in alignment with the will of God because there's some things that He wants to do that oftentimes the distractions of life and all of the things that we're dealing with can, can cause us to forget what those are. But when I get into a place where I humble myself in the Word of God and in prayer, I'm reminded by the power of God's Spirit and by His Word what he wants to do and can I just for a moment preach to us during this season I believe that God is trying to remind the church of what he desires to do and can I just tell you what it looks like practically it looks like more than just a few sitting in a school auditorium in an afternoon this is beautiful I'm thankful for what we have but for a moment would you with me envision with the eyes of God what is his will for our community what is his desire? I believe that his desire is to fill this room full of hungry people. I believe that it is his desire that we see the waters of baptism stirred. I believe that it is his, it is his desire that sons and daughters come back to God. That prodigals once again are saved. I believe that it's the will of God that this is no ordinary church. But that God uses you and me to see great things come to pass. It's an apostolic church. This is an apostolic church. If it's not an apostolic church, it's no church at all. I don't mean in denomination. I don't mean in any kind of namesake. I am talking about an apostolic church in action. An apostolic church in theology. Let me tell you what defines an apostolic church with just a few words. Number one, let's start with the theology of an apostolic church. Who we are. 
The theology of an apostolic church is doctrinal beliefs, what we believe in Scripture to be true. The apostolic church, the book of Acts church, they had to be centered on this. They had to be in agreement on these things. And a few of those things that made up the foundation, the cornerstone of their theology centered around the new birth experience. And I want to unequivocally tell you what we believe here at Stello Church. Not for the sake of crossing theological swords with anyone, but for the sake of clarity so that if you are sitting here today and you're wondering what's the difference, you will be able to walk out of here with either clarity and agreement or at least you'll be able to walk out of here and say, I'm ready to dig into my Bible a little bit deeper. In fact, if you've got questions and you're wondering, I ask you, come to me. Let's talk. Let's find clarity in the Word of God. Because the Word of God has the final authority in our lives. And the normative experience and message that was preached over the decades, three to four decades of history that is in the book of Acts, was that when people would come to God, it was not just a sinner's prayer as it has become in our day and time. I'm not trying to diminish anybody's faith or the steps that you have taken up to this point. But can I just tell you, the apostolic church had a very clearly defined theology. And that was when people would come to God, there would be a moment of repentance. Unfortunately, many stop at repentance. But in the apostolic church, the book of Acts, what you find is that beyond repentance, the next step of faith, as a part of their repentance, not the works of men. Because if you want to argue that it's not by works we are saved, then you even repenting or opening your mouth is a work. That's as much a physical work as anything. Confession of the mouth is where it starts, but that is as much a physical act as anything else that you will do. But the next step, Peter preached it. The Apostle Paul preached it. You see it alluded to in, a, in the churches in the epistles who had already experienced this new birth. They were commanded, not suggested, that they be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. Acts 2.38 is the first place that we see this and it continues on throughout the book of Acts. And let me tell you, if this was a unique experience, it only happened one time. We have those in the book of Acts. There are moments where there at the beginning of the church, the scripture says that those new believers gave all that they had. They emptied out their bank accounts. They sold their land. And they, the, the scripture literally says they laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, how many is thankful that's not a normative, repeated experience? Now, if God told you to do that, I believe that you would do that. If God told me to do that, and it was an individual call from God, I would be obedient to his word. Lord, please don't tell me to do that. But a normative experience happens over and over, and we see it again and again. And so the normative experience is repentance, baptism in the name of Jesus, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. In fact, what we see in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1 and 2, most historians believe was around 29 A.D., that's when this was taking place. But then, 10 years later, God's not finished because, you know, Peter stood up. And how many know sometimes God will put a prophecy in your mouth that's even bigger than what you realize? He stood up, he quoted Joel, and he said that this was going to be poured, up, poured out on all flesh. Did you know a decade went by and not one Gentile received the Holy Ghost? Or if any apostolics in here really know the book of Acts. Ten years went by and nobody who was a non-Jewish person received the Holy Ghost. Until this man named Cornelius. The Bible says he was a devout man of prayer. He's praying. God sends an angel to Cornelius and gives the apostle Peter a vision. And this vision is perplexing to the apostle Peter because it's obviously a mixing of, of, of what was... Uh, essentially non-kosher things with kosher things. Peter's a little bit confused, but then at that same time, there's a knock at the door of the house that Peter is staying at, and guess who it is? It's the servants of Cornelius who have come to get him, and they're telling him about this angel that this Gentile man has seen. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying Peter was, like, the smartest guy, but you could put two and two together that this is God. 
So he goes to Cornelius, and you know what happens? God fills him with the Holy Ghost and all of his house, and they're baptized in the name of Jesus. Thus begins the revival that begins to expand beyond Jerusalem. And at the same time, there's another man that begins to enter into the picture of the book of Acts. And you may have heard of him. His name is Paul. And about this time, this very well-studied Pharisee of Pharisees, this man who, or Sadducee of Sadducees, this man who was powerfully used uh, in so many uh, places in the Jewish community, has a miraculous conversion, and God begins to get him prepared for what would be a revival among the Gentiles. And thus, the rest of the book of Acts is birthed out of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Year over year over year, a few missionary journeys, three I believe it is, Paul goes on. And in every missionary journey, guess what? The theology does not change. In fact, there are moments in the book of Acts where the apostle Paul has to come back to Jerusalem just to sit before the Christian council. You can call it general conference if you're, you know, the first general conference. And all the preachers get together. And they say, Paul, what are you doing, man? What, what's, go, what's going on? I mean, you're pushing our lines right now. The lines of our tradition are being pushed right now. There's even a moment where the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, they're, they're in disagreement, and Paul calls him out. He says, you don't want to see, be seen with the Gentiles. And, and the Apostle Peter eventually acquiesces and says, okay, you're right. God gave me this vision. You know, when God wants to do a new thing, it makes the church uncomfortable. It can frustrate your tradition. It can frustrate our mindset. It can frustrate what you have, what you have been taught up to this point. Did, did we not hear a word from God last week? Whenever we, I, I believe it was straight from God. Whenever our guest speaker, when Landon spoke these words, he talked about how six times, He went down, Naaman went down six times and he could have stopped there and said, you know what, six is good enough. But seven, the seventh time when he dipped in that muddy river, it was whenever he decided to complete the work that God had for him, that he was given the redemption that he had been promised, the restoration that he had been promised. You say, well, give me a a New Testament example. Let me give you a New Testament example. Acts chapter 19 Another 10 years after Cornelius. You know what the Bible says happens in Acts chapter 19? There are men who had followed John the Baptist. Now listen, John the Baptist is the OG. You know what I'm saying? Like like he lost his head for this thing. Literally. Lost his head for this thing. And and the Bible says that that Paul rolls up and and they're there and they're, they're talking. And Paul says, he starts speaking to him. And he says, well, you know, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? He said, we don't even know whether there be what, what, what you're talking about. We talk about Holy Ghost. Now, at that moment, Paul could have said, these are some good John the Baptist's followers. So their experience is good enough. They obviously sincerely believe God. Paul did not, uh, did not begin to accost them and say, how did you not know? How have you not heard about this? Oh, your experience is secondary to my experience. If you think that this is about superiority, you're so wrong. In fact, churches that have right theology but improper doxology, which is worship, or fulfillment of that, I'm telling you, they're doing more harm than they are good. I don't want to have this message I don't want to believe this and have a wrong attitude. Paul didn't have a wrong attitude. He looked at them and with excitement, I believe, began to tell them about something that they could experience. And the Bible says right then and there, they were baptized in the name of Jesus because before they had only been baptized for what reason? Unto repentance. Nowadays, it's called an outward expression of inward faith. I will tell you, baptism certainly is that. You are outwardly expressing inward faith. But that's not all baptism is, according to the word of God. Now, when you think about what Peter preached at the beginning of the book of Acts, when he said remission of sins, Acts 2.38, that has become so perplexing to people that will tell you baptism is not necessary, that they have actually said, well, that 
word for there, for remission of sins, it, it means because of. Now hold up. Before you become a Greek scholar and change everything, that might hold water if the normative experience changed after that. And Paul said unto them, I suggest thee be baptized in the name of... No, he commanded them right there. Same with the Philippian jailer and all of his house. In fact, there are moments in the scripture where you even see the inference that it was beyond just the individual, that it began to spread into their community. Why? Because it's obedience to the word of God. There's, no, there's nothing magical in the water. We don't believe that this, this water has any magical anything in it. It is obedience to the word of God. That is what does the work. It is listening to what God has to say and saying, okay, God, if that's my next step, it's not superiority. It's not anybody looking at you and saying, man, you should have known this already. It's just somebody who says, God, you know what? In fact, can I just stop and, and, and just ask you for a moment? If you have been hesitating to get in the water and be baptized, Ask yourself genuinely, what are the reasons? And if it's not a clear biblical understanding, then we can talk through that. But if it comes down to things like this, well, my family might, well, I, what if, you know, I've been in this thing a long time to get back into. That doesn't sound like any biblical reason. That sounds like somebody who has become settled and prideful in their own religious experience. But when they see the word of God is standing in a place of disobedience. I know that's strong words, but if God is speaking to you through his word, no matter what it is, obedience is the next step for you. And can I just tell you, God will fill you with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Maybe you've been waiting and you're saying, God, I need something more. What am I preaching about? I'm talking about the theology of an apostolic church who stands together and says, Lord, we are united in your word. Even whenever our greater religious community seems to have settled for man's wisdom and man's words, we still believe that if you said it can happen, it will happen for us. And we speak in the name of Jesus that this will be a church where the Spirit of God flows freely. We speak in the name of Jesus that this will be a place where the truth of your word is preached in love and in belief and hope that when people respond, they're going to be better for it. Thank you, Jesus. I'm almost finished, but I want you to hear me. We're united in doxology as well. An apostolic church, that word doxology means worship. The, the worship that you see in this place, it should be done decently and in order. In fact, we see that there were times, even in the New Testament, where churches like the church of Corinth, they would, get, uh, they would have the theology in check, they would speak in tongues and all of that, but they would do it out of order. And Paul would say, this is for the edification of Christ. You're supposed to be worshiping God and you need to understand that there might be a guest with you. And so when we do these things, we should do them decent and in order. And plus, we ought to do them with private integrity intact. So all of that is true. But the worship, that this style of worship, I'm not talking about the style of music. I'm not talking about whether you have drums or you have a piano or an electric guitar. I'm talking about the hands lifted unto God. A hallelujah lifted unto God. I'm talking about hands put together in praise unto God. Maybe that's not what, what people are used to. Maybe that's not your background, but listen to me. It is an apostolic worship that we see in the book of Acts and in the New Testament churches and in type and shadow in the Old Testament. So yes, we get together and can I just tell you, I don't want to be a dead church. Stello Church, if we're going to be like that New Testament church, we are not going to be a dead church. We cannot afford to have one dead service. We cannot afford to have one lifeless sermon. We cannot afford to show up and just go through the motions one time. Not when there's souls at stake. Not when there's people that need breakthrough. Can I just tell you, when your hands are lifted, when your voice is lifted, you're fighting battles in the spirit. There may be times where you walk entire 
scared and it takes everything just to push through and, and just lift your voice in a small hallelujah. Don't stop doing that though because you're fighting in the spirit. Our worship is powerful. And then we're, the book of Acts church is united in methodology. The way that we reach. In fact, can I give you a few points briefly? The Bible says that the book of Acts church went from town to town on these missionary journeys. Why? For the sake of preaching the gospel to whosoever will. To anyone that would listen. God, I feel the Holy Ghost in this room right now. Let me just preach the, just about the first sermon that I've had a chance to preach here in this new year. This church plant is going to plant churches. This is not just for us. We are not praying that God would grow this little castle right here that we call Stello Church. We are asking God to give us kingdom growth. Because if we're going to be a book of Acts church, we've got to go from town to town, place to place. We've got to be commissioning and sending out. And I'm thankful that we get to partner with church planners all across America. Thank you for your monetary gift at the end of 2022. Just a few weeks ago, we sent that out. But I'm also praying that in the name of Jesus, that this theology and doxology would begin to flow into our methodology. If we can get these things right, we can see people empowered to do amazing exploits for the kingdom of God and if you walked into this room and maybe your life took a turn for the worse over the last few years and you wonder can God use me I say a resounding yes God can use you God can use you to preach the word God can use you to plant a church God can use you to teach a bible study God can use you to lead a life group God can use you Somebody lift your hands right now. And would you just pray, God, use my hands. If we're going to go from town to town, if we're going to be a book of Acts church, if we're going to be apostello, then I've got to be used in this kingdom. I want to be used, God, willingly. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm almost finished. Be seated for a moment. The Bible says that it was prayer and fasting and reading of the word of God that they studied daily, the scripture says. If we're going to be a book of Acts church, we've got to be a church dedicated to prayer, fasting, and the word of God. There is no gimmicky revival. That's not real revival. That, that may be moving sheep around. That's not the revival that God has for Stello Church. The revival that God has for Stello Church is a revival that was talked about in Isaiah and that was birthed in the New Testament. It's a revival of people who are on the streets and they ask themselves, what meaneth this? What is this? What is this thing? What is this? I've never seen a church like this. I thought I knew what Christianity was. And this certainly wasn't what I had in my mind. It's a revival for people who are sitting in their pews and they're wondering, God, what's next? Isn't there more for me? It's that kind of revival. And I'm telling you today, Stello Church, that God has a revival that is powerful, that is going to be birthed through prayer, fasting, and staying in the Word of God. The Bible says that they went from house to house. Can I just tell you that this week we begin house prayer. I want to encourage you. Some of you, I know you can't be there. Your schedule won't allow it. But would you join us on Zoom from your home? As at 6.30 this Thursday night as we kick off a unified prayer together. And I'm going to believe that wherever we're at, all across the Triangle area, whether it be in an apartment, whether it be in a home, whether it be by yourself with your family or wherever you're at, that as we go from house to house, that God is going to begin to move in our homes. Because this has to be more than just a Sunday experience. This has to be more than just good church on a Sunday afternoon. This has to be something that begins to move us in our homes. It has to be that there's a prayer closet, a private revival that is birthed within us in order for us to be that apostolic church. And as we end this sermon and this service together today, the last thing that I would bring to you is that any revival that is birthed, if it's a stello, Revival, an apostello revival, is a revival 
that is birthed in unity. A revival where, albeit a smaller group of people, comes together in one mind and in one accord and begins to believe together in unity that God is able to do what He said He would do. A group of people that in unity takes God at His word and says, Lord, mundane and mediocre is not why we exist. But God, You have called us. In unity we believe it. Together we receive it. That Lord, there won't be any division or schisms among us. There won't be, God, any disagreements that we allow to take precedent over what you want to do here. But God, in unity and in one mind and one accord, we will pray, we will fast, we will seek, we will believe until it takes place, until we see the revival, until, God, we see it come to fruition. There must be a unity among his people. Ken Gurley, pastor of First Church in Pearland, Texas. He wrote a book called More, really a study. And in it, he talks about unity and he brings up the North Star, also known as Polaris, because the fact of the matter is that North Star, as you well know, the star that is constantly due north, that for history, mariners and freed slaves or slaves on the run would use as a way to find freedom or to find their destination is a star that is not actually an individual star but in fact the north star is two stars that are spinning around one another so fast with a polarity so quickly moving that they appear as one star that is the vision for the church is that we would be in such a unified one-mindedness and one accord that when the world looks at us they would be astounded by our unity astounded by our shared belief astounded by our shared faith that God is going to do something amazing. Man, I feel the Holy Ghost speaking to somebody right now. Can I tell you, there's enough people that have unified themselves in a belief that our world is not going to make it. There's enough people that are preaching doom and gloom and brokenness, and I am very aware that we are in the last days. But could we remember as a church and be unified in one belief in this, that God, if it is the last days, there is a revival like we have not yet seen. And God, we're going to believe it for Stello Church. We're going to believe it with passion. We're going to believe that, God, it's absolutely true. We're going to believe that there are more to be baptized. We're going to believe that, Lord, you're going to, going to send them through the doors. They're going to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Their lives are going to be restored. We believe that together in unity. Would you stand to your feet with me? In the study... He wrote of one named Barton Stone who came to some prominence in the, first, or the second great awakening, which was a revival in America in 1801. He writes this, For all of America's religious beginnings, this nation had slipped into gross carnality. On the New England seaboard, however, something began to happen. The temperance movement, the missionary societies, and revivals in otherwise known as burned over areas. Such emphasis on God and morality are called awakenings in America's history. Another place affected by such an awakening was America's western frontier in western Kentucky, a place famed frontiersman Daniel Boone called Cane Ridge. A young man named Barton Stone had arrived there a few years prior. What he saw appalled him. This is his words. Apathy in religious societies appeared everywhere to an alarming degree. Not only the power of religion, not only had the power of religion disappeared, but also the very form of it was waning fast away. You see, Barton Stone was born to a Presbyterian family in Maryland, but he had recently undergone a transformation 
in his beliefs. He began to look back at the book of Acts and see the power found in the first church. And he became a part of a group known as Restorationists who determined to reclaim the church as first seen in the Acts of the Apostles. A meeting house was built in Cane Ridge that still stands to this day. That small structure, however, uh, ends up having significance in the movement because of what most known what had happened in the Appalachians did not happen indoors. But it became so large that it ended up being called a camp meeting. Anybody ever been to a camp meeting? Well, if it had air conditioning, you probably weren't at an actual camp meeting. You see there in those hot days and hot nights, 20 to 30,000 people begin to come to Cane Ridge. Their worship was demonstrative, not passive. Loud singing, dancing, clapping, fainting, and hand-waving. Their message revolved around repentance and yielding one's entire being body soul and spirit to God they saw healing and wonders they saw demonstration of the spirit people were drawn to these meetings several church and revival organizations trace their modern roots back to similar meetings as this on the hills of Cane Ridge meeting and perhaps partly because of the religious fervor it generated, the holiness movement emerged and would become a dominant force in America. And from such meetings years later, the modern Pentecostal movement emerged. What caused this rippling effect from this meeting? Barton Stone believed that there was one thing that gave rise to the influence of the Cane Ridge revival. It was his frequent prayer, quote, let Christian unity be our polar star. In this place today, Stello, I'm asking you, all things new, would you renew your commitment and your promise to yourself and your belief in an apostolic revival in this day and age? Would you step up to an altar in unified belief and say, God, it wasn't just for my grandparents or my great-grandparents or another generation, but we say, This is that.